You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. And this week's episode is entitled Learning to Love the Night. In the first half of the program, I'm going to do my first book review, which is Matt Gore's Under the Stars, A Journey into Light. And because this is a a Christian podcast, in the second half of the program, I'm going to reflect uh, from a biblical perspective some of the themes in the book. So if you're just here for the book review, that's fine. Listen to the first half of the program. So why do book reviews in a podcast? Well, I can think of four reasons. Firstly, I'm a self-confessed bibliophile. And many of you might be like me in that you can never have enough books and are forever shopping for books, no matter how many you have unread on your shelves. Of course, unfortunately, at the moment, that just means online shopping. And I long for the post-COVID lockdown day when I can peruse a bookshop at my leisure. Secondly, uh, from a personal point of view, book reviews are a good excuse to read some of my unread books and share what I've read with you, my listeners. And of course, then thirdly, there's nothing quite like a good book recommendation, is there? And I confess that I've sat in church at times, uh, flicking through my phone, read an article and thought, oh, that's an interesting book and bought it there and then. I've fallen stuck at the TED Talks, on occasion some sermons and certainly recommendations from a friend. So having someone talk about the virtues of a particular book is always a good encouragement to go and buy it. And lastly, I want to encourage you to continue to read. Uh, A couple of quotes I find helpful. First, I was aware of before preparing for this program by science fiction writer Ray Bradbury. He said that you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture, just get people to stop reading them. And I think in this day and age when it's the day of the the quote-unquote Karen, the anti-expert, the mansplainer, that it's all the more important to be well-read across a variety of issues. Likewise, Fran Leibowitz, writer and social commentator, said that think before you speak, read before you think. I think that's really true, that the more that you read, the more that you're able to um, think and therefore speak in with some sense of authority. So, okay. Under the Stars, A Journey into the Light by Matt Gore, uh, Elliot and Thompson, 2020. And the hardback set me back uh, only twenty six ninety nine. And it's 207 pages long. I got my copy at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney, an independent bookstore since 1968, which means it's older than me. And it's one of my favourite hangouts when I am in Sydney. So there you go, a free shout out. Now, Matt Gore is a writer, journalist and naturalist who lives in Bury St. Edmunds. His work has been published in The Guardian, The Telegraph and The Times. I certainly read The Guardian regularly. He works with the Suffolk Wildlife Trust, edits Suffolk Wildlife, uh, the magazine, currently writes a monthly country diary for the Suffolk magazine. 
and is director of the Suffolk Festival of Ideas. His first book was The Pool of the River, Tales of Escape and Adventure on Britain's Waterways. And having spent a little bit of time in Reading along the waterways, that sounds like a book that I want to grab. Now, the secret of any good fiction, I think, is that it pulls you into the story, and it's the same for non-fiction. And I think Matt Gore achieves that, at least for me. Here are the three pulls that I identified. The first is that vicarious sense of fear, because at least twice in the book, he gets lost in the dark. So you get that genuine sense of disorientation only without having to get lost yourself. So it's a touch disturbing in a way. Now I can relate, I got lost in a rainforest once, but during the day, so it wasn't nearly as disturbing. And it's also a little bit laughable too. Sorry, Matt, but you know, you keep getting lost. Secondly, I really appreciate the story of him trying to share his journey of discovery about the night sky with his family and how he sometimes has to drag them along for the ride. I'll talk about that in a minute. Thirdly, there's the sense of awe that the book invokes. What have we lost and why we should fight to retain it? That is, a view of the night sky. Now, I want to spend the next few minutes just walking you through a few sections of the book. uh, And I'm going to read bits of it. Hopefully that doesn't get me into trouble. It's less than 10%, I promise. But I really want to share with you his word craft. So in the introduction, let me read this little bit to you. As I flick through here. Out of the forest, the sky is a thick cobweb grey that clings to heath and field, bunching in lighter, wet swags around wind-sharpened drifts of snow and darkening around ink-blot patches of gorse and bramble. Fellow deer disturbed by the sound of my slow, snow-crumping footsteps break into a fat-bottomed seesawing run. Others follow the call to movement simply impossible to resist until the whole herd pours over the path in front of me. They move as one, a liquid form that jumps, jinks and springs away from open land towards the trees to my right. And then a bit later on. I've never really considered exploring the nightscape before. To me, night has always been a dark and gloomy place, a solid black bookend today that inspires fear and anxiety. But here among the trees, cloud and snow glow, I can already see that night is not just one long stretch of unforgiving darkness, any more than daytime is constant bright blue sky. Night is full of its own subtle shades of light, capable of illuminating the landscape and inspiring in us a sense of connection and wonder. I feel a tingle of delight at the realisation that almost by accident I've ghosted into a different world. And there's there's two real aspects to that. Firstly, I think he uses the English language wonderfully well. And, um, you know, whether or not it's describing the shades of dark on the different vegetation or talking about a fat-bottomed seesawing run. But then that genuine sense that you're taking a journey with Matt through the book into a different world, a world that we see by night. So chapter one is entitled Bathed in Moonlight, and I think he's written that chapter first talking about the moon, because despite all the light pollution uh, that we see, everyone's seen the moon and can appreciate the moon and the beauty of the moon. So for example, page three, she hangs impossible, a great cratered kite, her own seas, the large bowl, 
basaltic plains formed by volcanic activity, but once mistaken for water, are all visible, dark against the light-coloured highlands. And he talks about the various seas, the Sea of Serenity and the, the Seething Bay, etc. The whole face of the moon is pinched pink, a result of particles in the atmosphere scattering the light. There he slipped into some atmospheric physics straight away. How wonderful. But it looks as if she is blushing with the effort of her steep climb. She is, as D.H. Lawrence said, flushed, grand and naked as from the chamber. Well, Lawrence had some issues, didn't he? But it's a wonderful evocative image again. And then he goes on to talk about uh, his childhood fascination with moon missions, which is something that I share with him. And uh, I can remember a grade four class or grade three class where I waxed lyrical and all my knowledge about the different moon missions. But it's interesting. He then says, well, did the moon missions take away some of the glory of the um, of our fascination with the moon? Because the, the chapter talks a lot about some of the old myths and Venus and all these sorts of things. And it reminds me of Keats' Lamia. Um, Do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy? There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her woof, her texture she is given in the dull catalogue of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and gnomed mine, unweave a rainbow. And so it goes on. It's kind of an interesting aside because it's ultimately not where Matt takes the book, but identifies uh, that artificial light is the thing that's done it and tells some wonderful stories uh, about the role the moon's played in literature and as the tattler as it were because the a full moon meant it was impossible for uh, home raiders rogues and thieves of the skies of darkness he writes lyrically as a christian uh, it's somewhat embarrassing that he should point out but fair enough uh, that of course, the moon features in apocalyptic literature and the um, the writings of the um, the prophets, but uh, it's also seized upon by Christian fundamentalists. And uh, a friend sent him a, a video sermon of evangelist Pastor Paul Begley about a full moon. Dressed in a loose jacket and looking more like a car salesman than a prophet of doom, he cheerfully read the book of Joel, claiming the eclipse was a sign of the second coming of Christ. Oh, for goodness sake. But anyway, chapter two then is Under the Stars, and this is again a resonance between Matt and myself, where he drags his family on a holiday to Scotland to attend um, one of these places um, known as a a dark sky park. And I'll read a snippet in a second uh, under the pretense of a holiday. And I think about the various birding holidays I've taken my family on to far north Queensland. We ended up having to go to the beach in subsequent iterations because they got a bit fed up with just me traipsing around. Um, But anyway, so what's one of these um, reserves? Page 34. Um, So now 62 of these sites, and this was the first one in Blitton, they are places where the night is protected for its scientific, natural, educational and cultural value where the stars still gather in large numbers and the Milky Way still smudges the sky. And he goes on to talk about the great irony of the fact that technology now through telescopes like at this observatory can take us so far back in time and can illuminate stars that are way too dim for the human eye to see. But at the very same time, technology is meaning that we can't actually see the stars by our own eyes. And this, of course, is expanded as a terrible shame, and I I happen to agree, because there's nothing quite like that almost 
punch in the face of the immensity of space that you see. I can remember being on a conference for the Australian Institute of Physics uh, a few years ago, and it was the Poor Arthur Ghost Tour. So we're getting the spin about this um, colonial prison and the various ghosts that are meant to appear. And because we're all physicists, we're too busy uh, to look at the night sky and see the Milky Way and shooting stars and be blown away by that than to listen to, to real ghost stories, the sorts of things that Matt talks about in Chapter 3. I also like the fact that he riffs off uh, Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Total Perspective Vortex, which is where someone is, um, when you're put into the vortex, you are given just one momentary glimpse of the entire unimaginable infinity of creation, and somewhere in it, a tiny little marker, a microscopic dot on a microscopic dot says, you are here. So the night sky is meant to teach us uh, something about our finitude and make us humble. So what happens when you don't have the stars to do that? Chapter 3, as I note, um, talks about uh, night terrors and the things that scare us about the night time. I mean, who's not experienced some fear of the dark at some point? And uh, just a small quibble with the book. Um, he says that, Created by God, Genesis 1.5, darkness sits in opposition to his light, both as a metaphor for evil and as a literal description of those who dwell in the shadows. Actually, Genesis says that God creates light and separates it from the darkness. Um, Genesis chapter 1 does not support creation from nothing. That's a small theological quibble, but it's pretty much the only quibble I have um, from the book. And in the chapter on night terrors, he discusses ghost stories, including the Hand of the Baskervilles. And I highly recommend if you can get hold of it, the Tom Baker adaptation of that. And he also discusses human horrors. Uh, some of which might be mythological of London gang violence uh, by the, the lack of light, uh, by the new moon. And he manages to weave this whole thing about the terrors at night and the fear of being in the dark with yet another story of getting lost this time in the moors of Dartmoor. Chapter 4, entitled Burning Bright, it's a fascinating uh, trip. He walks around London and, it, and sees the less salubrious aspects of it, uh, supported by... Uh, artificial light, wondering with an iPhone app that tells him what he's not seeing in the night sky. And I've got the experience of having the opposite of using one of those phone apps when I could actually see the Milky Way. So it gives you that real sense of um, what you lose. He also lists, and somewhat disturbingly for a night owl like me, and I do a lot of these recordings and a lot of my research late at night, the disturbing list of things that lack of sleep can do for you. Um, disrupting your biorhythm, cancer, goodness knows what else. Chapter 5, Caught in the Light, is um, talks about how lighting affects wildlife and introduces the idea of light pollution. The fact that kind of that the light from our houses and the light that's sprayed in all directions from our um, lighting for safety um, is really a bit of a waste, but it also disturbs uh, nature. And so let me read just really quickly. A recent study estimates that between 100 million and 1 billion birds are killed in the USA alone as, the result, as a result of light pollution, with birds either colliding with lit buildings to which certain species are attracted in the same way a moth is drawn to a lamp or become entrapped and dying of exhaustion. Another American study revealed that the number of migrating birds increases the closer you get to a city. Uh, birds are affected in other ways too, with circadian rhythms and breeding patterns all bending with the light. 
and a 2015 study suggests that birds singing at night, mostly blackbirds or robins, traditionally early risers, were singing both later and earlier. Blackbirds living around artificial light produced young a whole month earlier. So it's an interesting journey into talking about the way in which wildlife in general, and I'll just focus on birds because I'm a bird nut, um, somewhat disturbed. Chapter 6 finally is Living in the Dark, where he visits the island of Sark in the Channel Islands and a community that's chosen to embrace the dark, um, which means not no light, but appropriate use of light and still be a viable um, tourist destination. And it's here you get another one of those funny stories where he drags his kids off to see the Milky Way and they go, I think it's near a beach and they're cold and there's goose poo and all the rest of it. And they grumble and they complain. He takes them home. They get out of the car. And they look up at the night sky and see the Milky Way and say, Dad, we, we could have done this by staying here. And so I'd say to you, Matt Gore, if you listen, um, that while that trip might have been a bit of a mess, you still achieve success in getting your kids to look up at the night sky and look in wonder with you. So just quickly then, why should you read this book? Firstly, the quality of the prose is excellent. Uh, you will be enthralled. The English language is an amazing thing and should be used properly, and I think Matt's done that very well. Secondly, there's the vicarious experience of seeing the night sky, getting lost at night without the stress, and learning about our own awkwardness in the dark, which then you might go on and venture to do yourself. Thirdly, it's full of interesting science and history to do with optics and stories about the night and night terrors and all sorts of things that we you can resonate with your fear of the dark like when I was a kid and used to pull my head under the covers all the time, that kind of thing. And finally, it will make you think about the nature of existence in a way in which our artificially lit life avoids. And more on that from a Christian perspective in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back to the program. Thanks for sticking around. Hopefully I convinced you to go and buy Matt Gore's excellent book. But I want to riff off that now. What's humanity's chief flaw, do you think? I would have thought that hubris was one of them. I think it's hubris that's led us into the trap of the Anthropocene with climate change and pollution of the waters and the atmosphere and the soil, but also light pollution. I think very much of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, reading from the NRSV. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now this is a Bible story, and I think it illustrates the principle. We can argue about the setting of it and the precise significance, but the story seems quite clear uh, that this building of a tower was to establish a name for humanity. And it turns out it's probably a way of controlling an encounter 
with the the sublime, with um, the transcendent, with a deity. That's what a ziggurat was, a tower was. It was an artificial mountain. So if human hubris is a problem, what's the cure? Well, you can look for it in a number of places. And Carl Sagan, I think I mentioned, you know, yes, I know I, did, I mentioned him in my first program. Uh, as someone that had a bit of an impact upon me, particularly as a kid. Maybe my favorite atheist, certainly one of my favorite scientists and communicators of science. He said, it has been said that astronomy is a humbling and, I might add, a character building experience. And when he, he says that, he's it, there's a phrase he used quite a bit and... Um, Gary Larson took it off, uh, billions and billions. And he's talking about the billions and billions of stars that exist in the known universe and how for him it reduced uh, questions about human existence to not quite as absurd as the total perspective vortex of Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which Matt Gore riffs off. But not as blunt either as Stephen Jay Gould, the, the late um, biologist, who wrote, physics and astronomy relegated our world to a corner of the cosmos, and biology shifted our status from a simulacrum of God to a naked, upright ape. That's in, oh, and I've forgotten the book off the top of my head. I'll talk about it in another program, because it's actually quite a good read, but the way in which he gets confused over issues is also rather interesting. So we used to think of our world at the center of the universe, and that's certainly the picture of the biblical writers, and then astronomy teaches us somewhat different. And then Sagan also writes, Who is more humble? The scientist who looks at the universe with an open mind and accepts whatever the universe has to teach us, or somebody who says everything in this book must be considered the literal truth and never mind the fallibility of the human beings involved? That, of course, is a direct challenge to biblical literalism. But I'm wondering whether or not he poses yet again a false issue. Or indeed, that he misses the point that the challenge of astronomy and astrophysics to human hubris and our sense of self-importance is not new to modern astronomy. This seems to be a thing, you know, you get atheists who think that uh, atheism was only a thing once Darwin proved that humans evolved from apes, when you read that there were atheists in ancient Greece. So I want to turn to Psalm 8, because I think it picks up nicely on the themes that Sagan picks up on, and Matt Gore, in his, dare I say it again, excellent book, Under the Stars, picks up on. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. Here's the key bit. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God, and crowned them with glory and honour. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, 
whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now you might think that I've gone backwards. I've started with a statement of the importance to reduce human hubris, and yet this passage itself seems most hubristic. Let's pick it apart. First, remember, as I said before, the ancient Near Eastern worldview, the common worldview of the biblical writers and those who wrote similar stories and had similar pictures, uh, is that above the heavens is where the throne of the deity sat. You have set your glory above the heavens, it says. And this is because it's based upon what's called a three-tiered cosmology. So you have the earth... And above it, the dome of the heavens, and then underneath is the, the, the deep, the waters, the Tehom in Genesis 1, and the realm of the dead. And above the dome, uh, through which the, the storehouse of rain, hail, and snow, see Job, Book of Job, for example, is the throne of heaven, the throne of God. And the sun, moon, and stars, if you read Genesis chapter 1, all have functions. They're to mark the seasons. They're to mark special times. In fact, it's not so much seasons as, well, put it this way, when you you go through the Hebrew Bible, what you find is that there are various events in the agricultural calendar which have religious significance. So Passover is tied to something and, and the the festival of booths and so on and so forth and they have times that match up with agricultural harvest so if you like there's ones there's no separation really between agriculture and religious festivals and that makes a lot of sense because in the ancient near east and you're relying upon uncertain rains where's your bang for your buck it's in your deity delivering rains and a plentiful harvest so it all kind of ties together so we're not going to get the same answers out of a book that says these features have significance in human life as you would from a scientific account the other thing to know is that if you start without god that's where you end but if you start with the possibility of god you'll end somewhere different the psalm starts with our lord our sovereign how majestic is your name in all the earth and heaven and earth that that are mentioned in uh, verse one are a whole you know that's that's everything that exists right it's either heaven or earth. So it's starting out on a, a meditation on the nature of God. And so if your starting point is atheism, you won't get anywhere other than atheism. And likewise, if you open that possibility of the divine, well, then maybe you'll get somewhere with that. But what it does do then is it meditates on the night sky and how it should humble human beings. When I look at your heavens, and now it's not a random emergence out of the laws of physics or a multiverse that exists forever and an infinite number of universes blah 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 blah. when i look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars that you have established so the whole psalm really is a comment on genesis 1 or equivalent creation stories underlying the accounts that we have so in the face of the immensity of the night sky where they had no conception that the universe was as big as it is, or 13.8 billion years old in the ancient world, how much more should we engage with science and be humble enough to accept it and then deal with it theologically? So 
I don't know if they literally believe in a, a six-day creation. It's not really the question they may have asked, operating from what are things for rather than how do they come together. But if they in their ancient setting could look up at the Milky Way and be blown away and think, what are human beings? Why would God give a you know, pair of fettered dingo's kidneys to link back into Douglas Adams yet again? For us... In the immensity of this, how much more should we ask the question if the universe is 13.8 billion years old and vast? The answer doesn't have to be different, given your starting presupposition. This, of course, extends to the thorny problem for some Christians of evolution and a 4.5 billion year old Earth and our mixed relationship with other creatures. And what you get ultimately out of this is... Not that human beings are completely and utterly set apart. That's right. Even though it says that we are, clearly we're not completely and utterly. Otherwise, there wouldn't, the psalmist wouldn't be asking the question in the first place, why do you care, God, about us? In the immensity of everything that we can see in the night sky, why do you care about human beings? And what we find, I think, when you turn to science is that not that human beings are different from the other animals in kind, but in combination and degree of our abilities. And the Bible story is about something a bit different. What does it say? You know, what, Why are you mindful of human beings? Why do you care for them? You have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. And here you have this royal language. And one of the things, if you read the Hebrew Bible, is that People ask for a god, uh, uh, sorry, a king from God, so they could be like other nations. And along comes Saul, and he's a bit of a mess up, but chosen by God. And then along comes David, and he's the youngest of his family brothers, again, chosen by God. You see, one of the things that gets turned on its head and shown to be something that doesn't work is hereditary kingship. Uh, David, then Solomon, and then the mess that follows from that. So the language of crowning is a language of election, of divine choosing, of divine bestowal of this image of God, of this responsibility upon human beings. It's given, not earned. Is this a return to a problematic anthropocentric point of view? Well, primarily, in a sense, I would argue that this psalm is theocentric. It's centered around God. It begins and ends with, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So firstly, God is, if you like, as Paul Tillich said, the ground of all being. So if your starting point is God, then you should get a more sensible view about what it means to be human and what it means to be a creature and what other creatures are in terms of their significance than maybe if you started with nothing but that's my bias as a, as a christian okay but the other thing of course is that this is in one sense a statement of fact that whether or not you believe that our status being over the rest of the planet is one of divine bestowal or evolutionary accident it's a fact that their fate is in our hands in many ways and there's agricultural beasts of course sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, but there's birds of the air and fish of the sea. 
And we've shot a lot of birds. Think about the passenger pigeon in the United States or the dodo, which got eaten to death. The fish of the sea, we've overfished the stocks. Yes, unfortunately, for better or worse, they are under our rule at this point in time. So what this passage is, I think, doing for us, riffing off the night sky, is that, yeah, we're insignificant in many, many ways. But we're significant in others. Theologically, you can argue that God has put us in this place, and it's to exercise wise rule. Again, going back to Genesis 1, what do we learn about God? God is a creator who makes much many beautiful things and we turn around and we make ugliness by destroying but that's not what it means to bear the image of god or to exercise any sense of dominion or or rulership um, not in god's place uh, but the, the phrase is vicegerent um, we're meant to represent god so the stars then keep us grounded <laughs> which I know is a bit of a mixed metaphor in terms of our humility, that in, and who knows, in the vastness of the universe, how many other intelligent creatures there are which might surpass our own, which have a place in the divine plan. But we are not alone. We don't need to look for ET, for companionship. I have one that has uh, four legs and a waggy tail. We have great apes. And we have crows and other corvids. And we have, if you've seen, there's a, a documentary on Netflix at the moment, I'm yet to watch, about octopi and their level of intelligence. We share the planet with all these creatures. The stars should teach us humility, but the Bible also tells us that we have responsibility. And if you don't get that from the night sky, surely Christians should get that from Jesus the Messiah, and of course, if we go back to this psalm and say it's not just talking about human beings, but uh, man and the son of man, which is a phrase or a title that Jesus takes on for himself, we should really tie things around through uh, ultimately the cross and the need to live a sacrificial life and poses the question whether or not on occasion we need to live a sacrificial life for the sake of other creatures we share this planet with other than humans. Well, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.